Welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute in Oakland, California. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and find a healthier, more equitable way forward. Today, I'm here with my colleague Rachel Bennett, a program manager at Prevention Institute, to talk about how public health can support investments in healthy communities without unleashing displacement. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. What makes displacement a public health issue? Displacement impacts people's health and the health of whole communities. And to understand that, you kind of need to first talk about housing and how housing is a health issue. For example, when people spend a lot of their money on housing costs, they have less money available for other things like food or their kids' education, or transportation, all things that we know support health, or saving money and building family wealth. That's also Mm -hmm. really important for health. When people are facing rising housing costs, they might move into worse quality housing. This might be housing that's next to a highway, or housing where there is lead paint or lead in the pipes, or where there's mold, or where the landlord hasn't kept up the place because they don't feel like they can turn a big profit on this. All of these things have health impacts. Things like neurological disorders in kids as a result of exposure to lead, or asthma as a result of exposure to mold, chronic stress or fatigue, or even educational impacts in kids, because it can be hard to concentrate when there's overcrowding in your home and there's a lot Mm -hmm. of noise and maybe you're not sleeping so well. Another issue is that as people's housing costs go up and up, they might move to a neighborhood that's further away from their community, further from their jobs, further from their kids' schools. And a lot of times we know people are moving to neighborhoods that are less walkable, have less access to grocery stores, and where they don't have relationships with their neighbors necessarily. Maybe their kid is in a new school. Everything looks different. Maybe there's new grocery stores where they don't have the kinds of foods that people rely on to stay healthy. And of course, when housing costs get prohibitively high, people may become homeless. And homelessness has a lot of health risks. Everything from increased risk of communicable diseases, like pneumonia or tuberculosis, to making chronic diseases harder to manage There's also increased risk of injuries and violence, and it's just deeply stressful to be at risk of homelessness or to be homeless. And then lastly, in addition to housing being a health issue, there's the notion that social fabric promotes health. And so displacement, or even the threat of displacement, it can really kind of fray people's sense of place, their connection to their neighbors, a sense of feeling rooted and secure, and like you have some agency in what's happening in your own life and in your own community. Displacement erodes that, and that has actual impacts on people's mental health and well-being. It can even have impacts on their physical health. Let's talk about how we got to the place that we are in our society, that displacement is such a pervasive issue and that it's so unequally experienced? In my mind, it boils down to money, power, 
and how we think about land. In the United States of America, we have an original sin of land use, which is that people came here and they took land away from others. And they introduced this notion that land is something to own rather than to steward. There's a lot that has followed from that. But in more recent history, there have been so many instances where certain communities receive the advantages of our public policies and other communities don't. For example, if you think back to something like redlining in the last century, and if you don't know much about redlining, I encourage you to learn the history of it. This was a government-sanctioned policy that helped some people to access home loans in communities and completely barred other people, relegating them to essentially a black market of home loans and creating whole neighborhoods that were deemed risky for home loans and home mortgages based on the fact that people of color lived there. One of the things that this did, this sort of codification of segregation, is it made it politically easier to build freeways through those neighborhoods or to put battery factories or manufacturing plants or hazardous waste disposal in those neighborhoods. Even today, you see in cities like Los Angeles, where which much of my work is based, the port of Los Angeles brings in a huge amount of wealth to the region and even to the nation. There are some communities that are breathing air with diesel particulates in it every single day, kids getting asthma, people feeling the impacts of that. The costs and the benefits are not evenly distributed. Those are land use decisions. These kinds of investments, these kinds of decisions are not necessarily neutral or positive for everyone. Learning about history shows you that the same communities have borne the brunt of the impacts of these things time and time and time again. It seems like the system does a good job of making the costs that some communities, especially communities of color, pay invisible. You're talking about redlining and that's a process that exposes black communities to predatory lenders, makes them more vulnerable to urban renewal and building highways, displacement. It's not like there's a nefarious person pulling all the strings saying, my plan is totally work. But we don't really think critically about who benefits and who bears the burdens in our system. And we're not really honest about that. One of the things that we try and do in our work at PI and with our partners is to ask for who. By centering equity in what we're talking about, I think, yeah, it helps to make the costs more visible and it helps to share the benefits. And that gets us to what I really wanted to ask you next, which is what inspired PI to move into this area of work and, and what inspires you to do this work? We work with a lot of really incredible partners who work on the ground, in neighborhoods, on issues like increasing access to parks and open space or to active transportation infrastructure. So like making sidewalks safe to walk down, 
creating bike lanes for people who have been biking for years and years, but maybe not safely, fighting environmental injustices in frontline communities. And PI facilitates a network of organizations who work on a bunch of different issues because we all have something in common, which is that we all care deeply about the health of our communities and we all work in communities that have, by design, not by happenstance, based health inequities over time. So in our work and in the work of our partners through what we call the Healthy, Equitable, Active Land Use Network or the HEAL-U Network, we keep seeing the issue of gentrification coming up. And there's this fundamental tension of when you make investments in what we call healthy communities infrastructure. So things like parks or bike lanes mm -hmm. or public transit or grocery stores, all these things that the public health field has been calling for for years and that residents have been demanding for years. Mm -hmm. When those investments are made, it can actually spark gentrification, not necessarily on its own, but you know, combined with all these greater forces in housing and in job markets and all that. But it can be a kind of a signal to people, hey, this neighborhood is getting, quote unquote, better. Developers pouring money into neighborhoods like that and local governments investing in those kinds of things, they attract more investment. You know, dollars attract dollars. People are moving into neighborhoods that they may not have previously felt welcome in or felt safe in or that they may not have thought of as a place that they want to live. And it's pushing people out. A few years ago, PI came out with a report on healthy development without displacement. And I was hoping that you could just summarize a few of the most interesting things or the most unexpected things that you learned in the process of researching and writing that report. One of the things we learned is that displacement is a public health issue. It has real health impacts on people and on whole communities. So I think there's really you know, a case to be made. If you're a person who cares about health, if you're a person who's working on health, this is an issue you need to be thinking about. This is your issue. It's not just a housing issue. It's not just a development issue. It is a public health issue. So that was one thing. Another thing was trying to find the most appropriate place to enter the conversation. There are people who have been working on these issues for decades. Affordable housing advocates, community organizers, residents in communities, you know, just people who are under threat of displacement or who mm -hmm. have been displaced. And we wanted to be really sensitive to the fact that we're coming to the conversation a little late. So we are trying to be humble and respectful and kind of recognize what we don't know and where we can just support. But then also, I think, be strategic about what health and public health can add to this issue area and to this work. I think we definitely see it as supporting what's already been happening, not trying to take all the air out of the room. But public health does bring with it some advantages. There is funding 
for public health issues. There is a whole constituency of people who care about health, everyone from, you know, health professionals to people like you and me who, when they're not healthy, when their child isn't healthy, when their neighbor isn't healthy, that is the most important thing in your life. We see that health can be kind of a door opener. What I hear you saying is that bringing health into the conversation can change the conversation. It can make the conversation broader than housing, broader than land use and planning policies, and help us to see the big picture and to frame the problem in a way that's big enough to accommodate real solutions instead of this plot of land here. This is something that we talked about before we turned on the recording equipment was how often people who share fundamental interests, like a fundamental interest in people being healthy, find themselves struggling over the scraps of a system that wasn't designed to support health for all people. I think health brings more people to the table and, uh, yeah, can, can create some new solutions to a problem that has seemed intractable over time. One of the things that we're seeing that is so, it's just an insidious problem in our work, is kind of the pitting of allies against one another. You know, if you have a plot of land, some people are going to say, we need a park there. Some people are going to say, we need affordable housing there. I think what we at Prevention Institute and what our partners see is we should not be fighting over those scraps. Can we grow the pie? And I think health is kind of a, a shared value, a common denominator for people who are working on parks and housing and transportation and food justice and all these different healthy communities issues. And if we start from that place, kind of in solidarity with environmental justice and economic justice and racial justice, then, yeah, we bring more people to the table and we can think together about how to build a more powerful approach. The forces that we're pushing back on are really strong. And usually they have more money than we do. But why are we focusing on the one plot of land that's available for either a park or housing? What about the parking lots that could be converted into parks? What about, you know, vacant commercial buildings? What about building up? What about opening schoolyards? What about requiring every developer who's going to make a whole bunch of money developing a new property to provide affordable housing units in our communities? Yeah, you mentioned that the problem of gentrification and displacement can feel intractable. And what public health can bring to that conversation is to say, this isn't inevitable. It doesn't have to be this way. That's what I love about the field of prevention is that it's aspirational but not naive. I have to believe that there is a way that we can use our collective brain power and resources and will to support people and to make sure that every community has the conditions where people can be healthy. And I think that we've seen how the status quo works. 
and it doesn't support health and well-being. And I think we can do it differently, but we have to be really smart about how. I got into the public health field in 2010, and I remember that there was a catchphrase that was just taking off at that time, and there is no one, I'm very confident, in the field of public health who has not heard it. And that is that the places that people live, learn, work, and play determine whether they can be healthy or not. But I think something that's gotten lost in our focus on place is that we can change the places where people live, learn, work, and play. But what if we're also changing the people who are living and learning and working and playing in those places? What factors help protect communities from displacement? On an individual level, you know, for any given person or family, basic economic security. So having a good job, having some wealth, owning your home, or if you're a small business owner, owning your property, these things all protect you. Um, it's one of the really challenging things about this work is gentrification can create some benefits for homeowners, for property owners, and a lot of risks for renters. It's not to say that everybody who owns property or owns a home wants gentrification to happen to their community because, again, that usually signals a big shift in a neighborhood and a cultural shift that I think is it can be really fraught. But financially speaking, if you own your home and property values go up, great. If you rent and property values go up and your landlord is telling you your rent is going to go up, that's not great. I think having a well-organized community, having well-resourced community-based organizations that can help bring people together and stand shoulder to shoulder and say, this is what we want for the future of our community, that's a really important protective factor. People getting involved in making planning decisions. I mean, there are lots of neighborhoods where there's really well-organized residents, and any developer who wants to come in and build a project knows that they have to go through that organization. And I think creating opportunities for people to get involved, and in meaningful ways. There are programs that train people to become board members and commissioners, really to put people in decision-making positions. That's another way. On a community level, one of the things that really puts communities at risk is being near a gentrifying neighborhood or a high-value neighborhood. So you think of your Brooklyn's, your Oakland's, near really, really expensive real estate where lots of development is happening, or like new stadium development or new transit development or development of a new hospital campus or a new university. Again, all these things that are usually framed as being good for the city, good for the region, good for economic development and job creation and all that. So what is the vision here? I think the vision is that people don't have to choose between affording a home and having a healthier community. Um, I think the vision is for 
every single community to support people's health. When you say it that way, it sounds so simple. And yet it's so far from where we are now. How do we get there? What do solutions to problems like this look like? Well, I think one of the things that we need to recognize is that no one has exactly figured it out yet, which is so unsatisfying. Everyone wants to know who's done it, how does it work? And like many of the big problems that we face in our society, there's not really a right way to deal with it. It's complex and it involves a lot of different solutions. I feel like what we have so far is lots of pieces of a successful approach to prevent or to, you know, reduce the impacts of displacement, but no one's really figured it out completely. With that said, I think we cannot get stuck in thinking this is inevitable. So there are a lot of things that we are seeing work. One of the most important things is to have organized communities you know, people standing together and saying, this is our vision for the future of our community. And if you want to do development here, you have to come through us because we are the ones who are proactively determining the future of our neighborhood. There are amazing grassroots organizations, community-based organizations out there working in neighborhoods every single day doing this kind of power building, organizing work. So part of what I think we can do in the public health field is just shine a light on those groups, make sure that they're well-resourced and they have what they need to do their work well. Again, underscoring that that work promotes health. Mm -hmm. Affordable housing advocates talk about protection, preservation, and production. So protection is protecting people who are at risk of being displaced. Preservation is preserving existing affordable housing. And production is producing more affordable housing. So within each of those, there are a lot of things that you can do. And, you know, for anybody who's kind of newer to this set of issues or this work, there are lots of points of entry into each of those things. And it's really about getting to know who's already working on these issues in your community and reaching out and, and asking how you can help, learning about the history, learning about what's going on, you know, joining a coalition, just going out for coffee with someone to learn more. But in addition to protecting, preserving, and producing related to housing, I'm really excited about some of the creative approaches that we're seeing in fields outside housing. This is kind of the space that Prevention Institute, I think, the niche that we have in this work. We're not the housing experts. What we do is find the common ground around healthy communities. I'm excited about creative approaches that we're seeing in fields like the parks fields. Here in California, where we are based, Los Angeles County, which is the state's biggest county, you know, it's the second largest city and it's the largest county in the country, just passed a parks funding measure. So there's going to be millions of dollars each year that are going to build parks, revitalize parks, 
operate so that your kids can go and have a program to go to and there'll be basketball courts and soccer fields and all that. And as part of that park funding measure, there was an anti-displacement or displacement avoidance policy built in. So this policy says that for the pot of money that's available for grants that cities and and park districts can apply for, that you are going to be prioritized for grant funding if your application has some sort of displacement avoidance thing built in. That can look like a lot of things. It can mean the park agency partnering with an affordable housing developer and saying, we're not just going to build a park, we're going to build a park and an affordable housing complex. It's what's called joint development. Or prioritizing grant funding in cities that have rent control policies or that have tenant protection policies on the books. What's so interesting about this is those things are far beyond the control of park people. This is totally outside of the norm of the parks world. But they're recognizing that parks are one of the things that can have an impact on displacement. And so they're they're saying to the extent that it's practical to do so, we want to put our money where our mouth is and we want to encourage the development of parks that come with some protections so that people aren't displaced by these investments. They can stay and enjoy the many, many benefits that parks have in their neighborhood. What I'm excited about is helping to shine a light on things like that, kind of new and creative approaches that find the common ground between fields that are too often separated by how things are funded and how government agencies are staffed and all that, and just say, what can we do together? I think that public health is often seen as something that is for other people. Mm -hmm. I think that we have a strong narrative in the U.S. about individualism and going it on your own. And we make it really possible for a lot of people to feel like they're doing that when they're not. We have to make the workings of our government, our society, these decisions that we're making more visible to everyone so that we can design systems where everybody truly benefits and everybody truly feels invested. One of the things that I definitely hear a lot is, okay, that's happening in Oakland, that's happening in Brooklyn, that's Mm -hmm. happening in wherever. That's not an issue here. I think there are huge portions of our country where, if anything, the major issue is either a concentration of poverty or many, many years of a lack of investment, whether that's economic decline or investments being made somewhere else. And I think that there's a very real perspective, especially from a lot of elected officials, of please bring the investments. We would love to have a stadium. We would love to have transit. Mm -hmm. We would love to revitalize our main street. Those things can be good, but for who? I wanted to just, before we close, ask you, where can we learn more about what you're doing? Prevention Institute and our partners with the Heal You Network wrote a paper on the issue that has a lot of links to additional resources. We pay respect to a lot of the people who have been working on these issues for a long time, so I definitely encourage you to check that out. And we are going to be hosting a four-part summit series in Los Angeles, but for those people who aren't going to be in the room, we're going to be sharing out what we learn. It's going to be 
four summits looking at how do we promote health equity through infrastructure investments. It's actually, I think, incredibly important to make sure, again, that you know our public dollars are creating public good and health benefits. You can also visit our website and learn about how Prevention Institute is approaching these issues and learn about the work of our Heal You Network partners. Mostly, I encourage you to just get to know who's working on these issues in your own community. That might be housing folks, that might be a grassroots organization, kind of a a resident group. That might be the public health department or a city department. Just get to know who else has been thinking about these issues and working on these issues. And if nobody has, and this is something you're interested in, start a conversation and go from there. Thank you so much for spending time with us, Rachel. And thanks to everyone for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. We're going to put the resources that Rachel mentioned in our show notes, and you can always visit our website at www.preventioninstitute.org. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback about this podcast. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Prevention Inst. That's Prevention I-N-S-T. Thanks for listening. <laughs>